Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. My guest in this episode of the Grant Williams podcast is Lizanne Saunders, Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. I've been a huge fan of Lizanne's for a long time now. I've seen her speak on numerous occasions and I read absolutely everything she writes, whether it's on Twitter or periodically on the Charles Schwab website. Lizanne's approach is it's just so refreshing to me. You know, in a world full of sound bites and drip-fed stock tips, She's so thoughtful, she's measured, she's incredibly insightful, and I'm absolutely delighted to get this chance to finally sit down and chat with her. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lizanne Saunders. Lizanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm delighted to have you appear. Well, Grant, I'm delighted to be here. As as I have mentioned to you, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I don't think I'm fully through all the episodes, but uh, there have been some just fascinating um, hours that I have spent with uh, with you and your guests in my ear. So I am honored to be part of this. Well, that's incredibly kind. Thank you. There's, uh, there's, there's so much to talk about. I mean, that's the beauty of the times we live in, I guess. You can pull up two people that have a little bit of experience, sit down, <laughs> ideally over a cocktail or a coffee and just start talking. And, and it's, um, you know, it's amazing that the, the, A, the topics you have to talk about and B, the different perspectives you get on. And, and, uh, oh, sure. I'm sure we'll do that today. But you know what I'd love to do first, because your background is you've been at really US Trust and Charles Schwab for over 20 years now, I guess. So, but I'd love to get a sense of your background because you've been there such a long time. It's very tough to find out, you know, kind of what came before that and, and what brought you into the place you're in now. So if you could give us like a potted background, that'd be awesome. Sure. So I um, graduated undergrad, uh, University of Delaware, first person in my entire family, both sides to graduate from uh, from college. Um, I think it was the only school I applied to. Um, <laughs> I didn't have any reference point from my parents. My da- My dad did three and a half years at uh, Community College of uh, New York, City College of New York, and then was in the Air Force, went to the Korean War, came back, had to get a job, uh, start a family, and never quite uh, finished. He just turned 91. So I I didn't, I wasn't following anybody's footsteps into this industry. I graduated with effectively a double major in economics and political science. The the degree was international relations. They combined it together when I was a junior. Had no idea even upon graduation what I wanted to do. Couldn't have possibly fathomed that 35 years later, this is what I would be doing. All I knew is I wanted to live and work in New York City. Founded the pavement, got introduced to a headhunter that placed uh, grunts, you know, entry level, fresh out of college like me interviewed at a lot of different uh, firms across industries and something just resonated when I interviewed at Zweig Avatar for the late great Marty Zweig and I spent 13 years there went to to business school at at night while working and my role on a day-to-day basis straight through the 13 years was portfolio management bottom-up stock picking which I I didn't love I was more fascinated by the top down, by what what Marty represented, the work he had done, uh, some of the just groundbreaking work he did on sentiment, you know, creator yeah. of the put call ratio. And so I was more fascinated by that top down uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, an opportunity presented itself at U.S. Trust. I took it to help kind of right the ship in their uh, large cap growth division. Still not loving the the bottom up stock picking, especially in a growth, aggressive growth, fully invested mandate that didn't allow the application of macro thinking. Right. right. Uh, and uh, lucky for me, ten months after I joined U.S. Trust, Schwab acquired it, and they very quickly our our CEO at the time, Dave Patrick, came to New York with Chuck himself to meet. A lot of the senior U.S. trust executives, and in the course of the conversation with uh, with Dave, the CEO, he said, um, "We should create a position of chief investment strategist. Would that be something you're interested in?" I said, "Absolutely." And basically, the rest is history. Bingo. So, I think having a 16-year background 
of managing money and picking stocks is probably beneficial to the yeah. role that I have now that is much more at the 30,000 foot level, but I, I much enjoy uh, doing what I do now versus uh, in the weeds of, uh, of balance sheet and income statement analysis. So it was, it was fortuitous that I was effectively adopted by the parent company that was, uh, that was Schwab and got to move over to what I do now. Well, you know, it's funny to have those twin disciplines is incredibly powerful, but I guess it'd be almost impossible to do it the other way around, right? It'd be impossible to start as a macro person and then get thrown in and say, right, now you've got to be a bottom-up stock picker. I, I think, yeah, I think th- th- this was the right way to, yeah. uh, to, to do it, absolutely. And there are people that just live, eat, and breathe the bottom-up stop. And, and, and I don't. I, I don't analyze stocks. I don't buy and sell stocks personally. I, I, in an outright sense, outside of what might be in funds, I own one stock. And it's a uh, symbol SCHW right. and you can figure out yeah. what that right. is and why I own it. <laughs> exactly right. But so, so let's talk about Schwab, the last 20 years particularly, because obviously during your time there, the changes not just at the firm, but in the industry in oh. particular have been remarkable. So remarkable. just, just kind of take us on that journey. Because I, I think people probably don't really understand the seismic shift that we've seen over that 20 year period. So from the internal Schwab perspective, and it relates to the industry more broadly, the the transition that was happening at the time that Schwab bought U.S. Trust was a shift from just being this discount brokerage firm behemoth, but still, that was what we did. The, 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 The revenue stream was largely based on darts, you know, daily average revenue trades, but it was yet again a move by Chuck to further democratize investing, which has always been his MO for the 50 years he, uh, he has had Schwab uh, from, its, uh, from its founding. And it was really a shift away from just being a platform for, for trading, which is also obviously an interesting subject uh, these yeah. days, to a more diversified financial services firm and an advice provider, which is where a role like mine came in. What I think is is certainly different about what what we do versus the industry is our focus is purely on the individual investor. But I also think that that was the start of an environment where the power players, uh, the, the 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 dynamics started to shift, the leadership started to yeah. uh, shift. Now much more toward financial planning and wealth management and and even the big investment banks that that have had private banks associated with them are now at least as focused on not down market but the mass affluent and the the advisor start, start uh, side of the business which has just been absolutely booming and there's so much about our industry that is dominant right now not least being investment advisors, wealth management firm, yeah. financial planners, RAAs, that that's in essence a first generation industry. And so I, that's why when I talk to young people, I say, I think there's never been a better time to come into this broader financial services industry because such a big and growing piece of it is first generation. And they're, and they're desperate to, to carry that on because you know prior to at least the founding of Schwab, the 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 business of investing was really limited to the ultra wealthy right, yeah. at, at a fee structure that was just absolutely absurd. And you know, fast forward to a couple of years ago, the further disruption that came with a, a very quick, although reasoned over time, but a lot of people don't realize it was only over about a five day period where Chuck himself basically sat down with our CEO and said, it's time, it's time we're going yeah. to zero. Yeah. And uh, that obviously um, caused a bit of a tsunami of, of, of others. And it, it, it really changed the landscape of the, of the business. And then you add the, the effects of the pandemic in terms of, of stock market behavior and participants. And it's, it's really been uh, remarkable, but I, I, I love the fact that our, my audience, so to speak, are 99% individuals. Yeah, it's not hedge funds, it's not institutions, it's not fund companies. It's it's actually, I think, people who 
really do benefit from uh, this kind of advice. It's part of the reason why I I don't do what a lot of the traditional Wall Street strategists do, which is, I think, silly exercises like year-end price targets. I have no clue where the S&P is going to close today at four o'clock, let alone right. and neither do December they, right? 31st at four <laughs> o'clock. I don't even know if that's a weekday and the market's open that day. And what's the point? Uh, so... So being able to fashion a role like this with the the what we think are the benefits to individual investors and some of the, not doing some of the silly stuff that I think in the institutional world, many of my counterparts are forced to do. Yeah, it's so funny. Talking to you like this, it's ringing so many bells in my head because when I talk to people who are on the other side of this particular coin and they work for either the investment banks or they're working in hedge funds or they're working in you know kind of traditional finance, they'll tell you it's never been a worse time to come into the industry. And you know, you combine that with the look at this that you get from your perspective, and you look at what's going on in the markets with, let's, let's call it the rise of retail for wanting to, to put a, a, a term around it. It's clear that this is a structural shift. This is not necessarily a fad. Now, how long that structural shift lasts, and if we do get a nasty bear market, whether it kind of chokes it off, I don't know. But do you see it that way? This is a, a structural shift away from institutional and towards retail? I do think it's a structural shift, and I think there'll probably be some pain uh, at some point, maybe not imminently associated with with some of the activities of the some of these newly minted uh, day traders. Uh, but I, I think even a few years ago, you probably couldn't convince people that something would happen to somewhat suddenly entice younger investors into the world of investing. The key, of course, is is helping build that bridge from newly minted day trader, Reddit-fueled flash mobs to successful longer-term investors. And I, I think the, the platforms that are more supportive of the gamification and pelotonization of, of trading are even starting to realize that they're, they, they need to sort of, whether it's up the disclosures or up the, the education piece of this is really uh, key. But... I, I think it's a force here to stay with, with implications more recently on, you know, GameStop, AMC. That I think is, it will ultimately be a bit of a, of a footnote, but yeah. uh, I, I, I think it's, I think it's great that we are enticing young people um, into the world of investing because certainly in the aftermath of the financial crisis, either because they were old enough and working or in school to have gotten burned either directly or indirectly, or maybe watched it happen to family members, uh, they they really just uh, shunned the whole notion of investing. And I think not only was the pandemic a, a push and all the stuff we've all talked about, the absence of sport betting, commissions to zero, stock slices yeah. or fractional shares, as we call it, the whole you know recipe or ingredients in that that recipe. I also think there's a longer term uh, force that probably does mean it's it's structural. I know when I talk to young people, part of the impetus for them really taking the reins of their own investment future is the uh, not distrust in, but just disbelief that there's going to be anything provided in terms of safety net, whether via the government or certainly via traditional uh, defined you know, benefit plans. Uh, so they realize that they have to take control in order to um, steer their own financial future because it's certainly not going to be uh, done for them. But, you know, you, you, when you started the, the question about the, the not just the change in the business, but depending on who you talk to in yeah. the industry, it makes me think of my husband's situation. He was a Ivy League uh, law degree, spent six years at two different big law firms in New York City doing corporate finance and structured finance and M&A and hated every waking minute of it. Has a personality bigger than anything you've ever seen, hysterically funny, and he just felt like his personality was atrophying. So in 94, he moved over to Wall Street, started institutional sales, sales trading, then ran sales, ultimately CEO at Dalman Rose, sold at the Cowan, so kind of moved up the ranks. And he would be one of those people upon leaving, interestingly, to go to the world of healthcare, just said, this part of the business is just dying. Just dying. Yeah, yeah. Dying. Um, and you know, I know, I know people who are still hanging in there. Whether it's again in those traditional roles of institutional sales, sales trading analysts, and you think about the power that those positions had, and the and the 
the compensation associated with that in the late 90s, early 2000s versus uh, now. You just rarely hear somebody come out and say, I, you know, I want to work on a, a yeah. trading desk at one of these big firms. So, yeah, I think it's a seismic shift in terms of where the kind of power center is in the, the broader world of, of financial services. It strikes me as interesting that along with that shift in kind of business model and structure of the industry, you are attracting a lot more young investors, which is great. But you know, what I've noticed, and I, I do another podcast about sport, and as we've gone through that process, talking about sporting franchises, the business of sport and fans, it's been evident that today's fans, they want shorter, 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 more snackable, short attention mm-hmm. span. And when you look at that in the world of sport, it makes perfect sense. It makes, just show me the highlights. I don't really care about the whole game. I just want to see the highlights. Obviously, that's almost anathema to investing. If you can attract people to invest them, how do you think about educating a generation with that mindset, which everything that's built around them encourages to try and think of this one area of their lives much longer term? Well, we we can continue to try to spoon feed them the education that we all think as long-term investors is absolutely necessary. It is admittedly um, fairly boring to talk about things like diversification across and within asset classes and the what I think is the the beautiful benefit of rebalancing periodic rebalancing because it it forces us to do what we know we're supposed to, which is not so much buy low, sell high because that infers in and out, but add low, trim high. Nobody wants to talk about that stuff. It's not exciting. So uh, unfortunately, what I fear is that the the lesson that these younger traders will finally learn may come through the pain of uh, of loss and the realization that this this isn't a game and it it isn't always winnable and uh, we we have to understand the the relationship between gains and losses and the fact that it's it's fear and greed that have always driven markets of any kind and we're not outlawing any of those so uh, we, 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 again, we can continue to try to uh, provide as much of that education and disclosures, but um, I, I think they may have to to learn it on their uh, their own. And, yeah. and you know, there's already been many, many stories, and not just of say the 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 pain and loss after what was the initial round trip in a in a stock like GameStop, but some of the other amazing stories around that January February period of time, not just misunderstanding the, the the loss concept but but just some of what was going on in the options market with with no understanding of not just how options work but even how to to read a yeah. statement associated with gains and losses not to mention the stories so many stories i read of of you know the, the it's usually the younger guys uh trading two three hundred times a day and then getting the first of many 30 page long tax forms and they said, what? Right. <laughs> Wait a minute. Right. <laughs> so there, there's so much about this that uh, that I think a lot of the education is just going to be through a process of, of time and, and gain and loss and fear and greed and all the same ingredients that have always been around. But it's also, if you're, if you're in your early 20s, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, one 60% drawdown will give you an MBA in a hurry and you'll you'll actually understand that. And, it, and it's it sounds weird to people that haven't experienced it, but it's actually beneficial to have a big loss early in your career, I think. Absolutely. And, and and what we hope is that the big losses don't come in a situation where you've levered Levered, up to a significant degree, either just via traditional margin debt, or you start playing some of these, you know, triple leveraged inverse uh, vehicles and you get a, you know, a vol implosion like we did in the beginning of 2018. So um, but it is, you know, stepping back and and just looking at sort of the social science of all of this, it is fascinating. This past year has been so fascinating, and I and I think if if there was such a thing as somebody being on a desert island for the past fifteen months, and and you you laid out in detail what happened, everything from the health piece of this to what we did to combat in terms of shutting the economy down, the the double-barreled nature of monetary and fiscal stimulus, what the stock market did, how long the bear market lasted, uh, you, nobody would believe it. No, no, they wouldn't. There, there's no way if, if you even provided the start points that, all right, folks, a pandemic is coming, here's what's going to happen. What do you think the stock market is going to do? 
And I, I don't think anybody would have uh, laid out the scenario that we have uh, that we have seen in the last fifteen months. It's really just extraordinary. No, and 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 makes a, an even stronger case for why bother with year end forecast, right? I mean, who could who could have come up with that? Let's get to markets and talk about those for a while. Your second half outlook uh, you released about a week ago, I think. And as always, it was it was a fantastic read. Um, well, but what I, what I was struck by as I, as I went through it was, it felt like there really wasn't a clear outcome. There wasn't a clear direction. Things are on such a knife edge at the moment. And, and as we talk about this, there was an almost heartbreaking opening paragraph to this piece where you talked about the fact that you are a rock chick and you like to get your song titles into your pieces, but you know the, the, these pieces don't allow for that kind of levity. So right. Rob insists that they have these, you know, right. the mid-year outlook generic titles. So right. I thought I got to get it in here somewhere. Well, you know what? So as we talk about this, feel free to dump as many song titles into this conversation as you can. The more the better. But, but just, just give us an overall sense of where you feel the market is, and then we'll dive into some of the kind of components of it, because it's fascinating. Sure. And I, th- I think the future is always unclear. We, we can go back in history and use it as a, as a basis, whether it's trying to figure out where we are in the economic cycle or the market cycle. So lack of clarity is always present, uh, especially if you're trying to do anything resembling forecasting. Yeah. But there, there's so many unique uncertainties right now by virtue of the the pandemic that I, I I find it interesting when I listen to people or read people, whether it's on the broad economic outlook or the hotter topic of the inflation outlook, that are so dead convinced of their <laughs> view and the factors that will unfold in one way or another to define whether it's you know, boom, boom, roaring 20s kind of scenario. I'm more in the boom settle camp or the boom bust camp and what that means for inflation. Is it a short-term transitory problem? How do we define transitory? When, if at all, does the psychology aspect of inflation kick in, which that gets much less discussed. Mm -hmm. Inflation Ultimately, when it becomes a 1970s style variety, the spiral part is as much psychology as it is metrics around level of wage growth or moves in the dollar and commodity prices. And and trying to gauge and anticipate that in advance, good luck. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I you know, it's, it, it's difficult. I, I find myself sort of somewhat in the middle in terms of those extreme views. The problem is, the distance between those extreme views is so huge that to say I fall somewhere in the middle almost sounds like a cop-out. But what I tried to do in the the Outlook report is not so much provide forecasts of what I think is going to happen, but provide what I think are the key metrics, factors to pay attention to, because I think those will define these various forks we're going to hit of especially from an inflation standpoint, transitory or not. I, th- I think, you know, I, I kind of joked with you, I believe we may have talked about it either off camera or on when we did the Malden um, conference. But if you look up transitory in the Oxford Dictionary, it, the definition is simply not permanent. Yeah, right. So, you know, then the 70s inflation was transitory. Yeah, transitory. Just, just a question of uh, of time frame. So I... I I think almost without question, second quarter is the peak growth rate in the overall economy, in earnings, not the peak growth in level terms, obviously, but the peak growth uh, rate. And I'm not sure if some of that is embedded in why we're seeing, I think, very different signals coming from the fixed income market than the equity market. I'm, I'm always a believer that even as an equity person, we have to pay close attention to what's going on in the fixed income markets and the credit markets. And I think even more so now, the 10-year yield yeah. is, I think, a more rational actor or a more rational has a more rational perspective on what's going on in the economy than the stock market. And so I, I was asked the question, at the end of a webcast I did the other day, and I it, it was one I didn't anticipate was coming. It was just you know what's the one thing you think is most important to watch, and immediately I I you know ten year yield popped into my head, and I think that that has really defined a lot of what we've been seeing in the market. That that spike up to one seven and change in March I think was an accurate reflection of the inflation we are now seeing. The fact that it has settled down I think may be a reflection 
or an agreement, at least for now, on the part of the, the fixed income market with this view that this is not going to turn into a 70s style wage price uh, spiral. And I think that's part of the reason why you've seen the, the leadership shifts in the market too, which, you know, interestingly, the tech sector has become very highly inversely correlated to the, the 10 year yield. And so I think understanding these um, interconnectivities between what's going on in the treasury market and the equity market, uh, I, I think more study of that needs to be done by people who are, 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 are not paying attention to that. I want to come back to this inflation thing because I think it's, it's such an important thing to think about. And that kind of brings me to the point you made there about your outlooks, because for me, it's incredibly refreshing when someone puts something out that says, here's what you need to think about. Not here's what's going to happen, here's what you need to do. Because I think too many people want to be spoon-fed the answers. They don't want to learn how to think about things, why to think about things that way. And, and, and the way you write your reports is very much, look, here's all the factors going in. Here's what I think and why I think they're important, but I'm not going to give you an outcome because, as you, as you mentioned earlier on, it, it's just impossible to know what's going to happen. And not only that, I think one of the mistakes, and I hope, uh, I think one of the most important lessons we can uh, share with with people coming into the world of investing for the first time is success in investing is not about what you know, meaning about what's going to happen in the future. It's about what you do. Yeah, it's our actions throughout the process of experiencing the things that either come out of the blue or maybe we did well in anticipating or something turned out to be the complete opposite of what we expected. That really doesn't matter. I don't know any successful investor that got there because of, of making major moves based on bombastic forecasts of their own or somebody else's. It's the discipline process over time that I think is the most valuable lesson versus the you know, moment in time stuff. I'd, I'd say the most common question I get from the financial media, in, in particular when we're in a more volatile period for mm -hmm. the market, is, uh, Lizanne, are you telling your investors to get in or get out? Right. Right. Which I think is, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the question. I hate it because I think it's a ridiculously stupid question, but I also love it because I get to explain why I think it's a right. ridiculously right. stupid question. Right. That That's gambling on moments in time. And that's not what investing is. Investing should always be a process over time. And uh, so I, 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 I'm always very honest in saying, I don't know what's going to happen. And that doesn't matter. Uh, that that it, it, Me giving you, again, to your point, spoon feeding and saying, this is exactly what you you should do doesn't make sense. Even if, and I, I have this, another thing that I drives me crazy and I often get from not so much the financial media, but when I speak to clients, I do client events or, or broader investor events that aren't necessarily clients, you'll get the question, what should I do? And they think if they provide maybe their age or I just retired, that I'll have a, an answer with precision. And it actually, uh, shame on anybody that gives a, a numerical answer, yeah. percentages, because I, I could have, I could have, I could have somebody come from the future and whisper in my ear, hey, you know, I'm just give you a nine to one odds that, you know, the S&P is going to be up 15% in the next six months. But if I was talking to two investors, investor A is, 22 years old, they go bungee jumping on the weekend. They just inherited $10 million. They don't need to earn income on it. They're not going to obsess over dips in the portfolio. And investor B is 75 years old. They built a nest egg. They need to um, earn, live on the income associated with it and really can't afford to lose much of it in, in terms of the principal. Well, I could have one singular high conviction view on the market. What I would tell those two investors are entirely different things. So I, I think... I always try to be honest in saying, I don't know, but it doesn't matter that I don't know. Here are the things that I think we all need to to look at, and that will help define the the, the path of what the market does well, that, and how investors should behave. But yeah, that's the beauty of it, right? N nobody knows. So Warren Buffett didn't know, and Stan Drucker Miller right. didn't know, and Paul Tudor Jones didn't know. None of these guys knew. And, and right. you know, I find the same thing where people say, well, you know, what should I be buying? What should I be selling? You can't distill it down to a soundbite, it's just impossible. But how do you, you know, you talked at the beginning of that about um, the people that have this absolute conviction about what's going to happen. How do you avoid that? Because you have to have a view, you have to weigh through the data and think, okay, this is what 
I, here's how I handicap it. I think the most likely course is this, but I can't be wedded to that. I have to constantly right. check that. How do you avoid that whole, this is what's going to happen and down the torpedoes? So I've had, um, and, and what I'm about to say is going to sound like I'm uh, cherry picking two extreme times where I just nailed it. Because believe me, there are plenty of times where if I've expressed a, a somewhat definitive view, I've been dead wrong. I'm 35 years in this business. I've had plenty of kind of wrong calls, yeah. if you want to call it, especially when I was managing money. I mean, just, you know, great success and horrible implosions. It's a little bit more esoteric now because it's it's big picture macro advice. I'm not running money. I'm, I'm, I'm not making these black or white calls. But um, there are times where it, a conviction in a view I have felt uh, much more strongly than other times. Um, in 07, I, I wrote, um, I forget what the song title part of it was, but it was... Um, two reports, one recession watch and one was housing um, armed and dangerous, capital ARM. And to me, that period of time was was so obvious in, in its excess and that this was, you know, literally and figuratively a house of cards. I don't know that I could have anticipated just how extreme right. the carnage ended up being within the financial system and the demise of Lehman and Bear Stearns. But this idea that housing wasn't in a bubble was just absolutely ridiculous. And I, I will say I wrote a report in, um, it was either March or April of 09 um, that I titled Here Comes the Sun. And just felt, because I'm, I'm such a sentiment watcher, it, it's largely at extremes in sentiment that I get more of that strength in the gut feeling versus any shift in economic data or valuation based, it's it's more that gut feel that comes from, let's think about Sir John Templeton and are we are we in a moment of despair? And and it really felt I, I will never forget a um, dinner conversation that uh, I was part of the Friday night, the week prior to um, the March 9th uh, low in 2009. And it was, most people had left. We were sitting around the dining room table. It was probably 11, 1130. And the host, um, who was at that point a 30-year veteran on Wall Street, struck up a conversation. And in the beginning of it, he said, Lizanne, I don't envy you. And he paused there for a fact. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, working at, at Schwab, I, I, I don't think we will ever see the S&P back to its prior high and I don't think we will ever see individual investors have any interest in investing in the market again. Wow, it's a big call. And my husband looked over at me and he said he, he saw kind of a funny look on my face. And 20 minutes later when we left, we got in the car and my husband looked at me and he kind of smiled. He said, did you hear it? I said, the bell ringing? He said, I knew you were thinking that. And I was, I thought, all right, you know what? The last person standing that should know better is down. Yeah. And that, uh, but even then that, you know, that notes associated that was not back up the truck and load right, up right. on everything. Cause that's never an appropriate view. Even if you have a, a strong conviction in what you think the market might do or the economy might do, what that translates into in terms of advice to investors, I think are, are, are somewhat uh, distinct. This is one of those times, though, where I, I don't, I don't, there's my, my gut is not strongly saying one thing or another. I, I see the speculative excess that concerns me, tempered a bit by the fact that it's in these otter kind of pockets of the market in, in, and, it, and it's been rotating. You know, the meme stocks, SPACs, non-profitable yeah. tech, some of the thematic stuff, crypto, it's not concentrated in the the big dominant leadership names in the market, which I think is one of the distinct differences between the 99-2000 period. But I also know that frothy markets can stay as such for a really long time. And in and of itself, that isn't necessarily an imminent contrarian indicator. You, you know it's there as a negative, but you also typically need some sort of catalyst. That's actually precisely what happened 15 months ago. I mean, we, we saw a really frothy sentiment in January and February uh, last year. I wrote about it at the end of January in 2020. 
And uh, we got the mother of all negative catalysts, yeah, of course, just... with, a, with a pandemic. I think we may have gotten a little bit of a sniff of it in March when you saw that initial spike in yields. And that was a catalyst for not carnage, but we had a you know, 10% correction in the NASDAQ and a pretty significant re-rating in, in higher multiple parts of the, the market. But, but this is a, a uniquely tricky time to try to figure out what's going to happen either with the economy specific to inflation and the stock market. Well, let's dig into that because you know, as I've done this series of podcasts, this subject of inflation versus deflation has just muscled its way to the front of every yeah. single conversation. And, and, I, and rightly so, I think, because that to me is the thing you really have to get right in terms of a secular trend because we've you know we've had 40 years in one direction absolutely um, and if we do get a turn then it it means an awful lot of dominoes have to topple in portfolio construction active versus passive growth versus value whatever it may be you really have to rethink just about every uh, component of your portfolio so i've come down in the inflation camp but the person i read the most now is our mutual friend dave rosenberg because he's him and Lacey Hunt, to me, are the two most articulate deflationistas, mm-hmm. and I want to know exactly what they're thinking every day of the, yeah. of the week. So w- w- how do you think about this shift? Is it transitory? And what are the signals that you're looking at to kind of help you form that view? So I, I think there are um, short-term, medium-term, and long-term yeah. uh, impacts that we have to consider. I think the, the probably the shortest-term impact that is set to fade imminently is the base effects because it was the – March to April, April to May, May to June last year, where you saw in level terms inflation dip, so the the comps are are lofty. So I, I think as soon as the June data, uh, a lot of those base effects will be passed. When you look at the concentration of the the heat within a metric like CPI into those reopening areas, and the fact that used car prices alone explained a big part of the the jump. I don't. I, I view that for sure as transitory. I, I don't. I don't think the market, meaning the the consumer market, will will be accepting of parabolic perpetual increases in in used car yeah. prices. That will that will start to squash the the demand side of things fairly uh, quickly. You know, the supply chain disruption piece of it, uh, supply demand imbalances. You almost have to go category by category, product by product, uh, I think, and I'm not an expert on what's going on in the semiconductor shortages, but when I do read the experts who are steeped in this a bit more, that could be a, a, a you know minimum of a one-year, possibly a two-year phenomenon where some of the dislocations that cause spikes in certain commodities, be it lumber, copper, iron ore, they've already started to uh, to roll over. Mm-hmm. So even the supply chain impact, some of that probably is alleviated fairly soon. Some of it could be a bit longer lasting. And then in the case of something like semis, we've already seen the ripple effect in terms of compressing the supply of new cars, which is why we've seen the boost in uh, in used cars. The wage piece of it is is a bit uh, trickier. Um, uh, the, the, the labor market data broadly is is just wild. There, there's another thing, if you were on a desert island and you showed people at this point in time that we're still almost 8 million jobs shy at pre-pandemic levels, yet we've got job postings absolutely through the, the roof and hiring plans through the roof. It, there just seems to be so many disconnects, which I think is why there's such a raging inflation dip debate with people on both sides, because even the labor market data, depending on what portion of it you pick, you can yeah. support either view, the disinflation, deflation view, or the inflation view, not to mention the fact that there's so much mix shift issue in metrics like average hourly earnings. I think you need to look at a, a whole parcel of, of wage data, particularly median-based measures versus average-based measures and unit you know, labor costs and employment cost index to get a, a full uh, flavor. And I think the, the price jumps that we're seeing, the question is, are they one time in nature uh, or do the do they keep going up? That's the, yeah. the spiral piece of it. And I think anyone that says companies that are raising prices, it's likely to stick. It's very rare that then companies lower prices, but do they continually raise them year after year? That's the big difference. So is this a one-time upward shift in, in prices um, such that then the, the comps start to ease or 
is this going to turn into the spiral situation? Which again, as we talked about in the beginning, there's a psychological component to all of this that has to be considered in addition to just looking at the relationship between wage growth and prices and whether the Phillips curve is indeed dead and buried or has just been uh, you know, on this desert island and is uh, is about to come back into the, the real world. I, uh, when I read Rosie's uh, stuff, I, I have a slight more leaning to that view than I do the hyperinflation, stagflation uh, view. But I also concede that I don't know. And there's, again, those unique factors tied to the pandemic that make this just a much trickier environment. You've got the the monetarists that still focus very much on money supply and money velocity. And I still think that that matters, but the the correlations between, you know, money supply growth and GDP, between money velocity and inflation have have come down quite a bit. And so I think they're they're still a factor in the analysis, but they're by no means the factor. In the analysis, I think the lack of money velocity, even in an environment where M2 spiked by 27% year-over-year growth, uh, is probably one of the reasons why inflation until very recently has been contained. But it's not the only reason because there's just less of a connection between money velocity and uh, and inflation. So I, I think the labor market and the and the the wage data uh, it measured in the right way is is I think key to trying to at least assess the medium term uh, outlook for inflation. I just don't think we yet have the the conditions for that 70s style wage price spiral, especially if productivity continues to improve. The complete opposite of what was going yeah. on in the 1970s. We were seeing declining productivity, it was a more closed economy. There was less globalization, less access to cheaper capital and labor outside the world, unionization, demographics. So uh, a lot would have to change and happen, I think, to lay the groundwork for that style of inflation. But there can be some uncomfortable inflation and maybe a Fed reaction function that causes some discomfort in a scenario that isn't 70s style. Yeah. So uh, I think it isn't just binary. There is a, a middle outcome here that could still um, cause some some consternation and volatility in the market. Well, yeah, that, that's the piece that I kind of ponder over is that people tend to talk about this idea of hyperinflation, which I, I think is certainly for the time being off the table. And then we get into the the seventies type double digit inflation, which again is to me a bit of a stretch. But the thing that I ponder is, relatively speaking, given the state of the broader debt markets, particularly in twenty twenty one versus nineteen seventy one, what do we need? What what kind of inflation gives us the same kind of outcome? And it's probably it doesn't need to be double digits. But if if we right. had if we had five percent inflation now, if this CPI print sticks. Mm-hmm. We're in a world of trouble. I, I agree. And so you know, I, I wonder whether that's the piece of this that people need to be thinking about is not, oh, no, we, we're not going to get 10% inflation because we don't need it anymore. Well, the other thing that I, I think is not getting discussed enough that is probably the most stark difference between now and any other time in history as it relates to inflation is we have the world's most powerful central bank and other central banks actively pursuing higher inflation. Yeah. That's a very different thing (laughs) than was the case in the the 1970s. And the question is um, how how successful are they going to be at sort of landing this, uh, this plane? And I also think there's another difference that needs to be considered or a possible difference that needs to be considered. I've been asked a lot recently what do you think Marty Zweig, the you know person who first uttered the don't fight the Fed or at least popularized it as a as a comment, what do you think he'd be saying now? And I've thought about that a lot because I keep getting the question. And I, I wonder whether he would be thinking, well, in the days he was creating his uh, his models and coming up with that terminology and writing about the influence of monetary policy on markets, he probably would have said, the Fed has had significant influence on the market. I wonder whether it's the other way around now. Does the Fed have more influence on the market or does the market have more influence on the Fed? And and I think this potential test 
that the Fed is going to face is going to be uh, interesting to watch. I, I think they're potentially in a, in a bit of a pickle. Um, I I went to the the well publicized uh, it was Economic Club of New York lunch at which uh, Jerome Powell spoke in December of 2018. Well publicized because very notably at that lunch he effectively by reading notes and not going off script backpedaled from some of the comments he had made the prior September, which was seen as a contributor to the near bear market that we got in the fourth quarter. And so there was a lot of the media attention on that, including in the the room of 1,500 people at the Grand Hyatt uh, on some of those comments. But I found something else he said at that time, and he's reiterated a couple of times to be more interesting and one that I think we all ought to consider, which was, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was the one time he wasn't reading his his notes. He sort of looked up and kind of made eye contact with 1,500 people and said, it's really important that we distinguish between financial system stability and financial market volatility. Our role is associated with financial system stability, not simply financial market volatility. If the latter starts to put at risk the former, that's that's a different thing. That was certainly the 08 scenario and to some degree what might have happened in the case of, mm-hmm. uh, of the pandemic. But the question is, how much control does the market have? And if there's a period of rampant volatility that doesn't threaten the stability of the financial system, are we going to find that the the Fed put doesn't exist anymore, and that um, you know Powell might say, "Look, the market's going to just have to take this uh, this medicine here." So it's it's going to be an interesting test. But I agree with you. I think given where inflation has come to, where rates are still pinned at the zero bound, I agree. You don't have to get into double digit territory for inflation for it to uh, to bite either actually in the economy or bite in terms of of the psychology around inflation. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you had a great chart in your outlook showing the spread between CPI and PPI, which I would urge people to look at because it really smacks you between the eyes. Because the last time we saw a gap like this was the mid nineteen seventies. Right. So that so that pressure is definitely there. And, and when you talk about the Fed, uh, this idea of financial system stability, which I agree. I mean, there's one way to test this theory out, right? Start tapering. Let's see what happens because you'll get volatility and we'll see. But, you know, overnight I saw that the Russian central bank increased rates by 50 basis points because they said we're worried about inflation. You know, they're up at 5.5% now and they were doing that because inflation was 5%. And obviously they've been through the pandemic. No country's pandemic is identical, but they've been through the same problems. They have a very similar set up to the United States in terms of headline mm-hmm. CPI numbers. They've got rates up at 5.5%. And yeah, you know, I think anyone who's paying attention would look at US rates and say, well, we couldn't even get close to 5.5%. There is no way the market, in terms of volatility okay. or stability, could stand rates getting anywhere close to that. So what do the Fed do here? Because I, th- I think you're right. At some point, they have to say, let's test this out and let's tell them we're going to allow some volatility because if we can walk this market lower in 10% clips, that's probably not the worst thing we could do at this point. And I, I think, you know, there's one embedded piece of, of good news with regard to the Fed approaching the balance sheet first before doing anything on the Fed funds rate is the front-loaded nature of the $7 trillion balance sheet right yeah. now. Uh, the fact that they don't actually have to do anything in terms of proactively draining the balance sheet by selling securities, there's enough that matures in fairly short order that simply a halt of adding and just letting some of these mature without a replacement can start to taper the balance sheet without more overt action. So I think that's one benefit to the maturity structure having uh, been uh, or come down to the shorter end of the, the spectrum is they can maybe do it in a in a bit more subtle a way than if they actually had to start um, outright uh, sales. And we also have just massive, massive private sector uh, savings, which I think is a buffer too. But to your point, uh, you know, I listened to a bit of uh, Christine Lagarde's uh, speech yesterday and, uh, you know, sounding just as dovish mm-hmm. as, uh, as, as U.S. central bank 
uh, members in the face of what actually is a growth trajectory in Europe that's even uh, potentially sharper than in the U.S. and an earnings recovery that's even sharper in the U.S. We're not yet seeing the spike in inflation, but they're a little behind in terms of the coming out of the pandemic just because of, of the timing of, of vaccines, et cetera. Yeah. But I think they're probably still on the same trajectory. So I think you're right. It's it, it, it's it's important to watch not just what the Fed is doing, but what other central banks are doing and and, and maybe not use it as a model, but but uh, see what happens as, uh, as central banks try to address this inflation problem, probably in very different ways, yeah. depending on what region or country you're talking about. Yeah, it's funny, as, as I listened to and read transcripts of various conference calls over this last quarter, you know, this, the topic of inflation was just about littered through every single one. And everyone was talking about price pressures and cost uh, input cost pressures. And it was pretty ubiquitous that Every CEO, every CFO was talking about the pressures they were under. And yet, again, in your outlook, you had this great chart of CEO confidence, which is, I think, higher, if I remember rightly, than it has been since I think it went back to the late 70s. It goes back to that chart. How do you kind of put those two pieces together, the, the, the pressures that they're under to try and pass on costs to retain margins and this supreme confidence? So I, I think the supreme confidence uh, typically has a high correlation with uh, with corporate earnings. <laughs> right. And earnings absolutely boomed in the first quarter. They're going to probably be even stronger in the second quarter. I think the profit margin piece is a much more recent story, which is why I think second quarter earnings season is going to be so crucial. Not so much just what the earnings prints are by the companies and what the percentage beat rate is and what we end up with in year-over-year growth, consensus 63% now, but the commentary. And and I think the commentary is always more important than things like the beat rate, which tend to get the headlines and the chirons on on television, uh, especially in the pandemic era. I think it was important back last year where you started to hear companies talk about whether they were seeing any kind of increased visibility, especially in the aftermath of a record number of companies just simply withdrawing all guidance. And and what that left analysts to do was left to their own devices. They just erred on the side of of cutting estimates absolutely to the the bone. But I think on a going forward basis, especially given that we're likely at peak growth rate in terms of uh, earnings, we're also at very high levels of profit margins. So uh, I think really important is to not only watch what companies are doing right now where the cost pressures are highest, where we just hit that highest spread between PPI and CPI, as you mentioned, since 1974, is um, are they going to try to protect profit margins by passing it on? Is there enough productivity that they don't necessarily need to do that? And I think we'll, we'll, we'll get some more clarity on that in second quarter earnings season. I'm not one typically for listening to a lot of, of corporate conference calls mm-hmm. around earnings because I'm not an individual stock person. Sure. I'm definitely going to do that a heck of a lot more um, when we get into second quarter earnings season than I have in the, the, the past because I think that productivity profit margin story is uh, crucial for uh, maybe not stock market overall, but certainly um, leadership within. Another thing I just wanted to touch on quickly before we finish is, is another piece you wrote about, uh, you asked the question, is the stock market disconnected from economic reality? And again, it was a really, really interesting piece. And it, I, I got the feeling that it's almost like gears that, that engage at points and then disengage at other points. Right. You know, optically, if you took, as you made your desert island analogy earlier on, if you look at this thing, you would think that the two are completely disconnected. But your summary of that said that it's actually not as disconnected as you might think. Just talk a little bit about that, if you wouldn't sure. mind, and, and, and why and how that synchronicity works. Well, in any cycle, leaving aside the unique aspects of the pandemic, the perceived disconnect is just a, a function to a large degree of, of timing. Um, stock market is a discounting mechanism. It's a leading indicator. It almost always sniffs out inflection points in advance and moves before you see it in any kind of acute sense in the economic data. That That's just standard operating procedure for the relationship between the market and the economy. When it comes to economic data and the stock market, better or worse matters more than good or bad. Human nature is such that we look at economic data in good versus bad, strong versus weak terms, but it's that rate of change, it's second derivative that the market keys off of. And it's what trips, I think, especially individual investors up all the time. 
they're they're most enthusiastic at tops because it corresponds to just booming economic numbers. And at bottoms, I can't tell you how often I hear, I'm not going to feel comfortable investing until fill in the blank. GDP is back up or unemployment. Yeah, the unemployment rate is is the most lagging of all indicators, which is why if you break the unemployment rate into deciles or quintiles or simple zones, the best performance for the market has always come when the unemployment rate is in its highest zone, not its lowest zone. So there's some of that, I think, that was in play in this cycle. The anticipation on the market, especially given the nature of the double-barreled monetary and fiscal stimulus, don't fight the Fed. We also have to remember that on March 23rd, the low of last year was the day the Fed came out and announced the backstop lending facilities that they were creating specific to this crisis. They weren't operational yet. They weren't functioning yet. But it showed the power of the Fed's words. But then specific to this crisis, if you just peel the onion back one layer, even what seemed to be a massive disconnect, especially in the first five or six months of the move off the low, wasn't really because from the March low until early September, all the leadership, all the performance in the S&P came from the big five. Year to date, last year through September 2nd, the big five, so Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, we're up 65%. The entire rest of the S&P, other 495 stocks on average were up only 3%. You still had almost 40% of the S&P in bear market territory, down more than 20% from a 52-week high. That, to some degree, was what was going on in the economy. Yeah. You had a small subset of not just survivors, but thrivers, and still a lot of pain under the surface. The, 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 their cap weighting of more than 25% of the S&P was sufficient to power the index to an all-time high, but the reality under the surface was actually more connected to the economy. And then, you know, fast forward in November, you get the vaccine news. That's when you saw the market broaden out and go more into sort of value factors and cyclicals. And that was in keeping with the market now discounting that that coming surge in growth. And then when the surge in growth looked to be as massive as it is, you went to a low quality bias in the market. That's actually quite normal. You tend to go through a few month period of low quality, negative earnings, weak balance sheets, high debt as you're pricing in a coming, not just lifting growth, but a real surge in growth. Those periods tend to be fairly short-lived, and then you go back more to a fundamentally driven market. So maybe with with extremes beyond the norm, but kind of the order of things, and if you just unpack it a little bit, uh, I I think this has not been as abnormal a, a period in terms of market behavior as many might think. You know, we've covered a lot in an hour and change, and I'm conscious of your time, but I'm not going to ask you for any predictions before we go, but I'd love to get a few things that you think people should be paying attention to, things that perhaps aren't on the on sure. the radar of most investors. Um, I think the growth versus value debate it doesn't go anywhere near uh, deep enough or isn't anywhere near nuanced uh, enough, uh, especially in today's environment of, of so much focus on passive investing, index-based investing. So it, it drives me crazy when I when I hear somebody or read somebody that will just simplistically say, you know, we, we think you should overweight value. And I always think, well, what do you mean by that? Right. Are you talking about the value indexes? And if you are, which ones? You're talking about S&P value, Russell 1000 value, Russell 2000 value. Um, the investors that might be taking that approach, do they know how vastly different the sector weights are even among the value indices and or the growth indices? Or are you talking about focusing on the factors of value or growth? So I've been saying, I think there's the lowercase g and v and there's uppercase g and v. Lowercase g and v are factors. And what's interesting is I I, I did some work internally uh, for a call that we do every uh, Monday, and I put together 11 charts, and they were for all 11 sectors. And I picked a typical value factor. It was free cash flow yield, and I picked a typical growth factor, long-term growth. And then um, the, the way, so some of this factor data that we get and have worked with comes from um, Nancy Lazar and the folks at, at Cornerstone. And, and we've been doing a lot of work with them on this factor stuff. And it's, it's a hypothetical trade where you're basically going long the top quintile of 
whatever factor you're looking at. Again, in this case, free cash flow yield versus long-term growth and short the bottom quintile. So that's not a trade recommendation, but that's how the charts were put together to just highlight what factors are, are, are leading or lagging. Um, the value has been outperforming growth year to date in 10 out of 11 sectors. The only sector where growth is outperforming value is energy, which doesn't exist in growth indexes. And the three sectors in which value is outperforming growth by the most are technology, communication services, and consumer discretionary. So I think you want to take a hybrid approach. I think you want to sort of screen for, look for value factors, but don't limit yourself to what's in the value indexes. Uh, Two other examples I give to to explain this distinction between the factors of growth and value and the indexes of growth and value would be go back to October of 02. Tech bust is finally over. S&P at bottom down 57%, NASDAQ down 78%, NASDAQ 100 down 83%. If you were a deep value investor, you wanted to buy the beaten up tech stocks. Mm -hmm. They weren't moved en masse into the value indexes, but that's where you went for deep value. If you just took an index approach, you still would have been buying the utilities and the telecom. Utilities is a more recent example. They're really expensive because they've been bid up by all the yield chasing on the part of investors that have moved out of of fixed income. So they're now a really expensive sector. That doesn't mean they're growth stocks. They're just really expensive value stocks. So I think the combination of value and growth, I think value will continue to be important. But when I say I like value here, that is something entirely different than overweight capital V and just put blinders on and, and buy, you know, the, the Russell value indexes or the S&P. And even if you are doing that, you're sure as well better understand what's in there because in the case of growth, S&P growth, Russell 1000 growth, 40 to 45% tech, Russell 2000 growth, half as much tech, twice as much healthcare. You've got way more financial exposure in Russell 2000 value than you do in Russell 1000 value. So understanding the makeup of this stuff, you better have a sector call if you're making a growth in value call at the index level. Very different than investing in the factors of uh, growth and value. So I, I think that that's because that's such a big part of the conversation within the stock market right now, I think there needs to be a better understanding of, of the growth value distinction. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating because everything that's being done at the interface between investor and provider is to make everything as simple as we can, to simplify everything. But the complexity that is being generated behind that interface is growing seemingly every day. I mean, it's, it's, such a, it's such a disconnect for me that we're trying to make something that's getting more complex, simpler. And I don't know if that's a great idea or not. It seems to me like it may not be necessarily a great idea. We are approaching things, I think, a bit too simplistically. And, and I think about that when I listened to your podcast episode with, uh, with Mark Cajodes and, and Ben Hunt. Yep. And I think that's another area that needs to get more focus, uh, which they touched on everything from all the embedded leverage um, kind of underneath the radar of, of certainly, you know, mainstream financial media and probably a lot of the newer players in the market. But but the concentration issue, too, uh, I think, you know, you, you guys talked about it and you talked about it with uh, with Peter Atwater, too. Mm. With, with, you know, in the case of Melvin Capital and GameStop, it was concentration on the short side. In the case of Archegos and CBS Viacom and a few other names, it was concentration on the, the long side. You know, Peter Atwater talked to you about concentration in crypto and in Bitcoin. And, and I, I think that that is a bigger problem that doesn't, nobody is connecting the dots mm-hmm. among those things. And that may, I think the combination of concentration and leverage Whenever we get the next blow up or crisis, whatever that is, uh, it wouldn't surprise me to be um, associated with the combination of those two things. Fantastic. Lizanne, I've, I've really appreciated it. We've gone a little bit over time, but thank you so much for being so patient. My pleasure. And, uh, and look, if there's anybody listening to this that isn't already following you on Twitter, what the hell are you thinking? But please let them know uh, <laughs> how to do that because it, the stuff you put out is uniformly excellent always. 
Yeah, so uh, it's at Lizanne Saunders, uh, just L-I-Z-A-N-N-S-O-N-D-E-R-S. No, no E, no two Zs, no underscores. I've had a rash of um, Twitter imposters in the last year, and we're pretty good at staying on top of it, but make sure you're actually following me. If the first thing you see is some sort of you know, Bitcoin solicitation, uh, trust me, you are not following the, the real me. If you see lots of charts and graphics and, and actual uh, data and very little bombast and opinion, then you're probably following the real me. That's the real deal. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I will make sure I tell people where to read your outlooks and all the stuff you put out, because as I said, it's, it's a fantastic read. Lizanne, thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great Thanks, weekend. Man. Give my regards to weekend, Liz. I hope she has a good weekend too. She will. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Be well. Damn, I enjoyed that. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, Lizanne's approach is, at least in the world of Wall Street strategies, atypical. And I have to say, to me, it's all the more valuable for that. If you're not across Lizanne's work already, then you definitely should be. You can follow her on Twitter, as she said. It's at Lizanne Saunders. Uh, watch out for impersonators. And you'll find her longer pieces on the Charles Schwab website, uh, a link to which I will include in the transcript But rather than read you out a long, convoluted URL here, just search for her by name at schwab.com and you'll find uh, her her work there. It's, It's exemplary. That's it from me. I will see you all again next time. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.